Listen. Just listen. I'm Ozzy Totten, and you're listening to a Second Story podcast. Second Story is a hybrid performance series, a collaboration among writers, performers, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. The following story was recorded live and performed by Laura Krugoff at our May 22nd show at Premise in Andersonville in Chicago. The theme of the night was unforgettable, stories of wonder and awe. And now, second story storyteller, Laura Krugoff. January 2006, and I've arrived early for the fiction writing class I teach at a university just up north from here. I hang my coat on a hook along the back wall, and I take my books and pencils out of my backpack. I check for chalk, and I write my name on the blackboard like my teachers in elementary school always did. I'm still new enough at this that the first day gives me butterflies in my stomach, but I love the way the first day allows me to invent this teacher version of myself, the me that wears tweed skirts and cable knit tights, the me that leaves chalk handprints on my shirts. I feel like I'm still practicing a little at being a grown-up. The room begins to fill up with the usual suspects for an undergraduate fiction writing workshop, young people looking variously artsy. Rachel has a shaved head, and beneath her trench coat she's wearing a studded collar, a lot of black, and fishnets. She'll write the loveliest story about a little boy with autism who can only speak by spelling out each word. She will also talk loudly to whoever will listen about her retail job at Tulip on Berwyn. (laughs) Matt is a prep. Khaki pants, J. Crew sweater, hemp bracelet. He'll be the kind of student who drinks too much. As in, he'll come to my office at the end of the semester asking for an extension, and I'll say, Matt, I'm worried about you. And he'll say, yeah, me too. (laughs) Kevin's a hippie. Long curls left unwashed and pulled back in a ponytail. He is a poet and will write fiction begrudgingly, but beautifully. He's the kind of kid I would have loved from afar back when I was in college. He'll flirt with Katie, who's about as blonde as a girl can be. I will learn that Katie is a theater major, and all her stories will be about young women who are theater majors. (laughs) Some of them get the part of their dreams. (laughs) Claire's my age, exactly. She will write lesbian erotica, and towards the end of the semester, she'll pass around airplane-sized bottles of schnapps when she thinks I'm not looking. (laughs) Jess and Dennis look like they will write sci-fi, and they will write (laughs) sci-fi. And by the end of the term, I'll hope they're in love. Today, though, on this first day, I don't know anything about these people. I only know what they look like. When I glance up from my roster, which I've been scanning for names that are going to trip me up, I see a person crossing my classroom who makes my heart freeze. The way she's dressed scares me. I feel my limbs go weak, and I think I will not stand 
for this. Now, don't get me wrong. I had had Muslim students before, of course. I had never before been unnerved by a hijab or an abaya. But this person is wearing more than a hijab or an abaya. She's a ghost in reverse. She wears today, and on every day I will ever see her, black slippers and black pants beneath her abaya, which is beautifully beaded in black at the hem and the cuff. She wears black gloves. She wears a hijab to cover her hair and a niqab to cover her nose and mouth and throat, which I'll see later when she stands very close to me because over this, over everything, she's wearing several yards of black cloth. The black cloth falls from the top of her head to her waist, both in front and in back. There's no screen for her to see through. When she has to write or read in class, she will pull this black cloth tight against her face so she can see. But all I see on this first day is a woman without a face, and the sight is so strange and so foreign, it frightens me. So she finds a seat in this semicircle of 15 classmates, and I'm thinking, who do I talk to about this? I can't teach someone whose eyes I can't see. I think she can wear whatever it is her father makes her wear somewhere else. Not here. Not with me. And even as I'm thinking it, I'm embarrassed of myself. I am a nice lefty Quaker liberal. (laughs) I am not the kind of person to go straight to xenophobia. If my students are freaked out, I can't tell. As far as I know, this riot is happening just inside me. They've all got their iPods on. So I start class. Hi, I say. They take out their earbuds. My name is Laura. You can call me Laura or Ms. Krugoff. Please don't call me Miss or Mrs. anything. Students laugh like they always do. I call roll. Katie, Kevin, Jess, Claire, Matt. And then I say, Zanib? And I look around as if any of my students might answer to that name. (laughs) Zanib raises a gloved hand. It's Zanib, she corrects me. Zanib, I say. Zanib, she says, leaning across the desk. And I look at that name now. Z-A-N-I-B, and I can't see another way to say it. But on that first day, I am totally flubbing this girl's name, and I keep thinking, if I could only see her lips. I can't hear her without seeing her face. Zabin, I say. Zanib, Zanib says. Okay, I say. Now, I think, part of what I was feeling was really judged. There, Zanib sat, every inch of her covered, and there I stood with my clavicle showing. I felt suddenly self-conscious that my students could see the shape of my calves. I think that's why conservative religious dress touches off such political controversy. What Zanib was wearing didn't feel like it was just about Zanib. It felt like it was about me. The first thing I do every semester is have my, my students tell each other about their favorite books. And soon I have this group of students doing just that. They love everything from chiclet to high school classics to fantasy. 
When students share a favorite book, they get instantly excited, and I can see bonds of friendship forming across the room. When it's Zanib's turn, she says, I wanted to say my favorite book is the Kohran. It's a poem, one long poem. The words of the prophet, peace be upon him, are the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. We're all silent, listening to her. But then Zanib says, I thought you guys wouldn't really know what I was talking about, so I'll say my second favorite book. That's any of the Harry Potters. (laughs) (laughs) And a cheer goes up. Everyone loves Harry Potter, and soon people are shouting about which book is best, and everyone is laughing and talking and agreeing with each other. At break, once everyone else has left the room in search of a soda or the bathroom or a cigarette, Zanab approaches me. Ms. Krugoff, she asks, I wanted to tell you that at break, I'll need to say my evening prayers. Okay, I say. So if I'm late coming back or something, it's because I'm praying. Oh, that's fine, I say. Zanib lingers by my desk. I need to find an empty classroom or something, some place to pray, she says. And I suddenly understand what she needs from me. You want me to go with? Would you? She sounds relieved. I don't want to interrupt a class or pick the wrong room or anything. So Zanib and I go searching. I peek in classroom doors, and we find just the right, quiet, empty room. And she says, thank you. And she is kneeling before I'm even out the door. Once, later in the semester, Zanib will find me in the women's restroom. Ms. Krugoff, she'll say, and I'll imagine her eyes wide. This lady walked in on me while I was praying, and I think I really freaked her out. (laughs) Oh, dear, I'll say, and we'll both laugh. Will you go find her and explain? She tried to talk to me, but I couldn't answer because I was praying. In Arabic, face down on the floor. I think she was really scared. I'll see what I can do, I'll say. And I don't remember thinking about how scared I'd been when Zanib first walked into my room. At that moment, she was just my student like any other. Almost. Zanib did turn out to be much like all my other students. She laughed and joked and did the reading. She peppered her emails with emoticons. Something I always found surprising and strange. She used little images of faces to communicate emotion in her emails, little shorthand representations of expressions I'd never seen her make. She happily participated in the workshop of her peers' fiction. She wrote short stories about Muslim girls learning to give up listening to the radio and liking boys, learning to treasure wearing the veil, stories her peers read as avidly and insightfully as she read theirs. Although it's noteworthy that none of my students asked What do you mean by the veil? Do you mean the hijab or the niqab? Or do you mean that sheet of black fabric over your head? They didn't ask, and I didn't either. Maybe I thought not asking about the veil in Zanib's short stories meant I'd learn to see past hers. But the truth is, I did not see past Zanib's veil. Every time she walked into my classroom, the sight of Zanib startled me. Every class meeting, I had to relearn the trick of looking at that blank, black space where I expected a face. 
I thought about Zanib, what it must be like for her under that black cloth. I wondered what the world looked like. I owned a black dress made of a material that looked similar in weight to Zanib's outer veil, and I draped it over my head one morning just to see what Zanib must see. I was surprised by how well I could see, certainly well enough to walk around my studio apartment without running into things. Although everything was very dim, and the folds of the fabric blacked out everything that was not directly in front of me. When I went to the bathroom to look in the mirror, my own reflection frightened me the way my first glimpse of Zanab did. I snatched the cloth away to look at my face. I felt the way I used to feel as a child, afraid to look in the mirror if the room was dark in case it reflected something evil or supernatural about me. I let the dress cover me again. The person I knew vanished, and Zanib's shape took her place. Even though I knew it was just me, I was looking at my pulse raced. There was something terrible about being separated from my face. By the middle of the semester, I'd started dreaming about Zanib. I couldn't feel like I knew her without seeing her face, and so my brain made one up. In the first dream, she came to my office. After closing the door, she took off her outer veil to reveal a sliver of subcontinent copper skin and the bird-in-flight arch of her brows. Her gold eyes were rimmed in black. She untied her niqab, and I saw high cheekbones and a heart-shaped face, thin lips, and a small dimpled chin. I dreamed of Zanab at least once a week. I dreamed we met by chance in the women's locker room at the gym. <laughs> I dreamed Zanab came to my place. I dreamed once she was walking on water at the pool where I swim laps. She was dressed as many other Muslim girls on campus dress, designer jeans, an embroidered shirt, a gorgeous scarf for a hijab. Girls Zanab dubbed in a short story once, good enough. Muslims. In each dream, I gave her the same face. When I told my mother about Zanib and my dreams, she said, just ask her. What? I said. We were on the telephone. I had a glass of wine in my hand and a stack of stories piled up next to me on my bed. Ask to see her face. You're a woman. There shouldn't be anything wrong with it. Maybe wait till the semester is over and... Just tell her you're curious. I don't think that's right, I said. <laughs> but I wasn't sure why, and I considered it. Zanib turned out to be the kind of student who leaves a handwritten thank you note in your mailbox after final grades are posted. At the top of the card, she dedicated her writing to God in Arabic, something she did in the top right-hand corner of every piece of writing she turned into me. And then in bright blue bubble script, she said, thanks for the great semester and told me to stay sweet. <laughs> I decided to start staying sweet by letting Zanib pass from my life without my ever once mentioning her radical form of dress. I certainly don't know why she wears what she wears or what she feels like. But when I think of Zanib now, years later, I think first of that girl I saw in my dreams. I have to work 
to remember that that girl is no one I've ever met. I never saw Zanib, but there is a face I have attached to that name, a face I know by heart. And if I ever saw that face in a crowd, I don't know if I'd feel like I'd seen a ghost or a girl I once knew. That was Laura Krugoff. If her story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Join us for our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar in Logan Square on June 10th and 11th, or join us for a special children's performance on June 2nd at the Morseland Cafe in Rogers Park, or join us at Revolution Brewery in Logan Square on June 12th. For information on these or other performances, or information on how to get involved with Second Story, please visit our brand new website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. This Second Story podcast was brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Bobby Badrisky, Megan Steelstra, Sherry Pentamone, Ozzy Totten, and Eric Hazen. I'm Ozzy Totten, and thanks for listening.